First John chapter one. First John chapter one. If you ever were taught to memorize scripture as a youngin, you were probably taught to memorize First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's a context around that verse, of course. John wrote this letter because he wants us to go deeper with the Lord. He wants to equip us to do that. You know, that which we have, he says, we want you to have it too, this deep relationship with the Lord. We want your joy to be full. In other words, to remain full. And so John opened his letter by declaring that God is light and there isn't a speck of darkness in him. So because of that, I can't claim to be going deeper with Jesus if I'm living in darkness. And when we talk about a life of darkness, sin is a big part of that, and it will keep us from fellowship with God. But John also told us that if we walk open and honest before the Lord, Jesus' blood will continually cleanse us from all sin, which means it is possible to fall short of God's standard as a Christian, but still be going deeper with Jesus. The difference between walking in darkness and, or walking in light isn't that Walking in light is perfection, walking in darkness is falling short. It's that the difference is in how we handle our sin. And so that's what John's going to get into today. So 1 John chapter 1, we begin in verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John here is listing three possible ways that I can deal with my sin. All three ways are phrased as if-then statements. And there are four different types of if-then statements in the New Testament language. The New Testament wasn't written in English. It was written by a, a much more precise language. And one of the ways that you could say an if-then statement is, if this happens, then this will occur. And I'm expecting it's very likely this will happen. That's what is the use here. It's of the more probable future. He's expecting, John is expecting to bump into all three kinds of people that he lists here in a church environment. If he walks into our church, he would expect to find each of these kinds of people in our church environment. And so he's going to explain to us each one and either the blessings or the problems with each one. The first one is if we say that we have no sin. So this is the first person that John expects to bump into. It's that when you bring up the topic of sin, they say, I don't have any. In other words, like literally it reads, if we say we have sin, you're bringing up the topic of sin, we're having none of that. That's how he writes it. If you say, you want to talk about sin, we don't have a sin problem. He says, this is the person I want to address first. Now, this person in John's mind that he's addressing first is someone who has been influenced by Gnosticism. Remember, the antinomian sect of Gnosticism taught that the sin nature had been eradicated from the soul when they came to faith in Christ. So the flesh could be indulged as much as you wanted to because it would never touch your soul. Sin can never come between you and God in any way anymore because of your faith in Christ. Now, that sounds hulky that you can indulge your sin as much as you want and still be a Christian realize that there are some in the church who claim the same things today. Clark Witten, if, if you've ever seen the sign on I-4 that says God is not angry, okay? Clark Witten, he's the pastor of the church that puts that sign up. Uh, he's the current pastor of Grace Orlando Church in Longwood, Florida. He teaches something very similar to what the Gnostics taught. 
He claims that the Reformation got justification right, but that the church has gotten the doctrine of sanctification wrong for the last 500 years. And that his understanding of grace that he's discovered inaugurated a second Reformation and that the, quote, the gospel is going to become good news again. Hasn't been good news for 500 years, but now after his discovery, it will become. In his book called Pure Grace, Witten claims that a transformed life was not part of the purpose of Christ's death, that Jesus didn't die to transform your life. He also claims that immoral behavior on the part of someone who professes to be a Christian doesn't move God. In other words, that God is neither pleased nor displeased by anything we do. And he also claims that it is a waste of time for believers to confess their sins to God. This is a quote from his book. Christians are not required to confess their sins to God in order to be forgiven. We are already forgiven. How much time will that free up? I don't, I don't think we spend enough time confessing our sin. I don't think any of us needs to free up more time by not doing it. Now, I don't usually name names, and I'm not bringing him up to say Clark Witten's a horrible person or he's not saved. That's not my point. And I'm not saying he's intentionally trying to do harm to the gospel but I'm using his example to show you that John's words still apply today. Because it's easy to read this verse and go, well, who would say that? There are many who say that. There are other church leaders or even whole denominations who deny the atonement or hell or God's wrath for sin. There's an entire denomination that asked, I forget the name of the guy who wrote the song, but he wrote the song in Christ alone, a modern day Kim. And in the, the second section of verses, which talks about by the Christ, the wrath of God is satisfied. They wrote him and asked him, can we change that lyric because we don't believe that the cross atones for, that satisfies God's wrath. We don't think we need that. But he refused, thankfully. There are groups out there that they deny those things, that Christ died as a good example or a, a sacrificial example, not because God's angry at our sin and we need to be saved from that judgment. There are those within the church environment who either ignore their sinful nature or don't believe they have one, who claim to be saved without acknowledging that Christ died on the cross for the sin they've committed. So it's important that we realize and go, okay, I don't want to be in verse 8, or if you are, to fix that. You see, Christianity isn't a philosophy of life. It's not an organization you join. Jesus is a Savior, paying the price for not just the world's sin or even the world's fallen state in general. He is a Savior who paid the price for my specific fallen state and my specific sins that separated me from God. When I claim to be a believer but don't acknowledge that truth, there's a huge problem. And so he says, if we make this claim, here's the problem. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. When I deny the concept that I'm a wicked person and deserving of God's eternal judgment, <laughs> I'm throwing a big blanket over my conscience. I'm throwing a big blanket over God's word and over Christ's life. I am misleading myself. No one else is deceiving me. I am misleading myself into thinking, oh, there's nothing over there in that corner except an old unnecessary chair I don't want to sit in. And that self-deception leaves a person lost. It says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
So when he says the truth is not in us, it means Christ is not in us. When I am wrong on the topic of my sin and my need to be rescued from it, if I don't believe that, then I am automatically wrong on who Jesus is and what he did. Jesus was God incarnated as a man who lived a perfect life and then died on the cross as the sacrifice for my sins to satisfy the wrath I deserve for my sins. He died the death I deserved, paying my ransom, redeeming me from the executioner's block and from my enslavement to sin. Now, the good news, that's the bad news. The the bad news is that I'm in this place. The good news is that Jesus paid the price for me so that if I will repent of my sins and trust Christ and all he did for my sins, I will, will be rescued. If you have never acknowledged your sins, repented of them, and trusted Christ to save you from your sins, you're not right with God this morning. It doesn't matter how long you've gone to church or how much you've served or how many people you've helped. You're not born again. You're not saved. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something quite challenging. He makes the declaration in Matthew 7, 21, that not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. There will be those who, when they see him on that day of judgment, they'll go, oh, Lord, it's you, and, and they're not going to be allowed to go into heaven. It explains the person that says, Lord, Lord, and that will enter is he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. And what's the will of the Father? The will of the Father is that I repent of my sins acknowledge my need for a Savior, and put my trust in Christ. Now, when this shock hits that person, they will say, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name have cast out demons, and in your name done many wonderful works? But Lord, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I was at church all the time, and I helped people, and And then he says, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. You, you We never had a relationship. You never never got right with me. I never approved of the relationship you thought we had. I disapproved because you never dealt with your sin. I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And here's the thing, ye that work iniquity. The word iniquity means lawlessness. You that are antinomians. That's what an antinomian is, without law is what that word means. If you've been practicing a version of Christianity that resembles verse 8 of 1 John 1 in any way, then you need to repent. You need to stop misleading yourself. You need to take the blanket off that chair, off the truth. Because someone who is going deeper with the Lord doesn't convince themselves they don't sin or that they don't have a sin problem. People sometimes, I will hear this phrase a lot. I will ask people when I'm sharing my faith with them, I'll say, listen, if you were to die today, would you think you'd go to heaven or hell? You know, heaven, why? Well, I'm a good person. Okay, well, let's just look at a few of God's commands. He says this is what's good. You know, have you ever told a lie? Yeah. Have you ever stolen anything regardless of the value? Yeah. You know, you go through the list of just a few of the Ten Commandments, and you get to a point where they're like, so do you still think you're a good person? And like, no. I say, so will you go to heaven or hell? 
just as adamantly, almost always, well, heaven. And I'm like, well, why would you think that? And, and this is always it. Well, God's a, he's forgiving, I believe. And I say, you're right, he's forgiving. But if someone walks up to my home and burns it down, and then I come out and go, why'd you burn my house down? What are you doing? And they just go, well, it's all good, right? Because you're a forgiving person. That's not going to fly. Like that's, we're not going to be okay. You're like, oh, you know what? You're right. I'm a nice guy. Have a Merry Christmas. That's probably not going to be my reaction. And God is a just judge. We defame his name all the time because of all the things he doesn't stop. If God was out there, why did he stop this? But then anytime God, in the Bible, we see him stopping evil, we go, hey, that's mean. Like you can't have it both ways. We know in our hearts that there's wrong that needs to be stopped and evil that needs to be stopped and a just God would do that. But we don't apply it to me. <laughs> I don't apply it to me. Well, God's a forgiving God. You're right, he is. You're right. That's why he sent Jesus. But if you're gonna just pretend like that's not necessary, like there's that t-shirt, it's an old, old t-shirt, but it says, it's got a picture of Jesus on the cross and it says, if I'm okay and you're okay, explain this. I'm not okay. Like, I'm not good with God. The cross declares that. The reason it's an ugly crucifixion is to say, you're not okay. This is how ugly sin is. Because someone who's going deeper with the Lord doesn't convince themselves that that's fine. That's what a life of darkness looks like. In contrast, someone who's going deeper with Jesus brings their sin into the light so the Lord can deal with it. And so that's what we get to in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here Paul is dealing with the second kind of person he expects to bump into in a church environment, someone who is regularly confessing their sins. And notice here in verse 9, it's different from verses 8 and 10. In verses 8 and 10, there's a claim made, but a life that doesn't back up the claim. And then, or a claim to faith. And then verse 9 just has an action listed. There's no claim. And so the idea being here again that it's a walk, it's not a talk. So he says, if we confess our sins, well, there's some good things that are the result of that. So let's look at this concept of confession. The word confess means to say the same thing. To say the same thing that God says about my sins. Now, this is important, if we confess our sins. So we're not confessing the fact that I'm a sinner in general. He's not talking about an unbeliever here. He's talking about a believer. He's talking about specific wrong things that we do. Confession is saying the same thing about my sins that God says about them. Lord, you call anger wicked, or you call unrighteous anger wicked. Lord, you say lying is wrong. Lord, you say that hatred is so awful that it had to be paid for with your own blood, and I agree with you. There's no excuses. There are no justifications for what I did. I take full responsibility, and I bring myself into your light. That is the biblical concept of confession. Saying those words or something along those words requires that I'm not hiding my sin, that I did it, or ignoring that I did it. It means I'm bringing it to Him, and I'm bringing it to Him just as it is, not dressing it up to look nicer with my excuses and my justifications. Confession is not this. 
Lord, I know it's wrong to lose my temper, but you know how nasty my spouse can be. That's not a confession. That's an excuse or a justification. It's no different than what Adam and Eve did in the garden. The Lord said, Adam, what'd you do? And he goes, not my fault, the wife you gave me. Looks at Eve and goes, what'd you do? And she goes, not my fault, it's the serpent you created. In both cases, they say, it's not my fault, it's someone else's fault, and ultimately, it's your fault. I don't need to make a confession, God. Confession is, Lord, it doesn't matter what my boss said to me or how they've been treating me for the last three years. It's wrong to leave early but write down that I stayed later. That's theft. You call that theft and you hate it. You had to go to the cross for that. And I don't want to do things that you hate anymore. I want to please you with how I work and I choose to do so going forward. That's confession. Now, it's not just the concept here about the one time we do that, although the blessings come for every time we do that. The concept here is that this should be a regular part of our lives. The word confess is in the present tense. It's describing something that should be a character trait in our life, that we don't regularly hide our sins or ignore our sins or justify or excuse our sins, but instead we regularly bring them into his light. And this is the second kind of person John expects to run into in a church environment. He expects first off to run into people who are saying they're born again, but they're not because they've never dealt with the sin issue. And then he's expecting to run into those who deal with their sin this way. And for them, he says, instead of creating a problem, like the first one where you make a claim and it falls short of God's terms, this, this way of living means you experience two blessings. Number one, it says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And number two, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let's look at the first one, forgiveness. It mentions here that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins, but it should be translated, he acts faithful and just toward us in order that he might forgive our sins. In other words, John isn't declaring God's character here. You know, he's not telling us, and by the way, God is faithful and just. God is faithful and just. Faithful means that God's dependable, reliable, trustworthy. He always is. And God is just. It means righteous. He always does the right things. That is true about God's nature and about God's character. But that's not what John's teaching us here. John is declaring how God responds when you and I confess our sins. He responds in a reliable and righteous way in order that the sins I bring to him might be forgiven. You say, why is that important? Because the enemy tells you time and time again that if you come to God, he won't be reliable and he won't do the right thing. The enemy will come to you over and over again and say, you'll be rejected if you bring this to God. He will say, you've done this too many times, or you've gone too far this time, or God's done being gracious to you, or God won't believe you're genuine, or the thousand other lies he tells us to keep us from confessing our sins. And John wants us to know that every single time we come into the light, like he's describing here, that God acts in a reliable and righteous way toward us. Isn't that awesome? That's great news. Know this, that when you come into the light like John describes here, the Lord will never turn you away. He who comes to me, Jesus said, I will what? In no wise cast out. You can always rely on him to be the same, and you can always rely on him to do the right thing. 
And what is the right thing for God to do when I bring my sin into his light? Well, Romans tells us. Romans chapter 3. Paul spends the first three chapters, like the first part of chapter 3, discussing our sin problem. And he, man, he hits it on every angle. And by the end of the midway point of chapter 3, he leaves us with this conclusion, therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. In other words, none of us are going to be right with God by living a certain way. It's just not going to happen. The law's purpose was not to make us right with him. In fact, he tells us, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law makes us aware of our sin. It points out our need for a Savior. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 3 Paul now pivots. He's like, okay, I've established this truth. Now, let's look at what God did to fix this problem of our sin. But now, verse 21, Romans 3, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There is a way to be right with God without having perfectly kept God's law, the fact that I fall short of His glory. And it's a way that the Old Testament prophesied, predicted would come. Verse 22, what is it? Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is upon unto all and upon all them that believe. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, for there's no difference. Why? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us are in the same pit, so all of us needed the same solution, the cross. So verse 24 when we put our faith in him like that, it says, now being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We exist now in this condition of being righteous before God. God sees me as just as if I'd never sinned. Verse 25, Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, in other words, satisfy God's anger at our sin through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the forgiveness of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. In other words, the cross declares that God can do the right thing and forgive us, even though we haven't earned it. In Christ and through our faith in Christ, he can do the right thing, which is to forgive us because Christ already paid the price for us. When I come to the Lord with my sins, the right thing for him to do when I come and confess my sins is to forgive us because he's already judged that sin in Christ. Which brings us to verse 26. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. Every time God forgives us, it declares his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Because of my trust in Christ and what he did for me on the cross, God can be both just because he has punished my sin perfectly by punishing Christ on the cross. And he can be a justifier. He can declare me to be righteous even though I'm not intrinsically righteous. God would be unjust and unfaithful to not receive us when we come into his light like John describes. It would be the equivalent of saying, I know I paid it all on the cross and I said that's enough, but it's just not. I'm still mad at you. That would, if we were to come to God and with open confession of our sin, and he were to go, eh, yeah, I'm just not going to forgive you this time, he would be being unfaithful and unrighteous. And God would never do that. The cross made it so that God could righteously forgive you and me, and then keep on forgiving you and me as we seek to go deeper with him. Amen?
It's an awesome blessing. The word forgive here, it means to remove the guilt from the wrongdoing, to send it away, to dismiss it. God sends my guilt away, pardoning my wrongdoing when I confess it so that I can continue forward in our relationship as if it never happened. That's awesome because my sin is ever before me. My sin's ever before me. Like, I don't forget. Like, I come to the Lord, and I'm like, Lord, I know I was here yesterday about this, and the Lord's like, what are you talking about? That's why I love that song, my grave could not hold you, my death could not hide. The riches of your glory and the blood that flowed from your side. In righteousness, you have clothed me, in Christ I've come to hide. I stand my own righteousness, I look around, yeah, I see it all, I see everything that's happened, and all the guilt is there, but I, I come in Christ, and I come before his throne of grace, and it's as if it never happened. And God doesn't do this grudgingly either. In Psalm eleven seven, it says, the righteous Lord loves righteousness. He loves to do the right thing. He delights in doing the right thing, and the right thing to do when we come into the light is to forgive us because of what Jesus did for us. Do you realize that he loves to pardon you? Like, he's not frustrated. You know, he's not up in heaven and be like, oh, here's Will again. What was it this time, Will? You know, well, Lord, you know, it's kind of the same thing it was like two hours ago, and I'm really sorry, and he's not like, I have to forgive him, don't I, Jesus? Yes, Dad, you have to forgive him. Are you sure? Yeah, fine. Like, that's not how the Lord operates. He loves to pardon you. He loves to draw you close again. And so if verse 9 describes you, well, your, your practice, then I would ask you this morning, what lie of the enemy has been keeping you from his beautiful pardoning light? If you're struggling bringing your sin to the Lord, what lie of the enemy has been keeping you from his beautiful pardoning light? Reject that this morning and come. He is waiting with open arms. Now, forgiveness isn't the only blessing that comes with confession. Cleansing is the second blessing. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The faithful and just part applies to this blessing too. God acts in a faithful and just way to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word cleanse, it means that he might purify us from contamination. The same word used in verse 7 where it talks about his blood cleansing us from all sin. We have been contaminated when we sin. If you've ever formed a bad habit, all right, or a sinful habit, you know that when you first started doing it, it wasn't like, a, like this hard, hard thing that you just couldn't say no to. But the moment you do it, and then you do it again, it becomes easier and easier and easier until it ensnares you. So the, whenever we sin as Christians, we become contaminated by it. It affects us. Our wrong deeds affect us. And so God says when we confess our sins that he begins to purify us from all unrighteousness, all the activities that go against his standard or character. In other words, he begins to change us. In Ephesians 5.8, we learned just a few months ago where Paul talked about this need to walk in the light. And so he said in Ephesians 5.8, he said, for you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. So walk as children of life. Same thing that John's telling us to do here. Now, Paul wouldn't need to tell us that, to walk like who we are, if it wasn't a challenge at times. He wouldn't need to tell us, walk as children of light, if we didn't struggle being children of darkness sometimes, or acting like them. 
So God doesn't just forgive us and bring us close. This word carries the idea of purging. When we bring our sin into his light with a confession, it allows him to do surgery on that part of our life that isn't like him. He begins to purge it out of me so I become, over time, more like him. And that's why the enemy tries to keep you from God's light. Not only does staying in darkness keep us from fellowshipping with God, it keeps me from changing. It's so crazy, he says to you, you can't go to God, you're too awful. When the one place we need to go to change and stop being awful is the Lord. I have a confession to make. I really, really, really like ice cream. I don't know when this thing happened. I wasn't a sweets guy when I was in my 20s. But at some point in my 30s, I really started to like ice cream. Now, there's nothing sinful in and of itself about ice cream, but you could very easily turn into sin. So this is that idea of contamination. I was at my sister-in-law's house for, for uh, Thanksgiving, and she had made this pie, and, and man, it smelled good. And there was some ice cream and some caramel sauce. Nothing wrong. It's a holiday. I'm going to go have some ice cream, have some pie, put ice cream on my pie, and squirt a little caramel sauce on it. No big deal, right? Problem is, the rest of the night, because I've been an ice cream guy for the last seven, eight years, I want more pie. And everyone else in the room was so evil, they didn't eat it all up, so there was some left. So I could still smell it, and I'd walk by. I think I walked by twice with my plate and thankfully resisted. We all battle things like that. Some of them are more serious than ice cream. In the Old Testament, it says in the book of Proverbs, you know, don't go down to the house of the strange woman for her doorway leads to death. Now, of course, you walk up and you go, well, it doesn't look like death. I mean, it actually lies home. She's nice to look at. Well, later on in the chapter, it says the problem is, is that she reduces you to a piece of bread. Sexual sin, pornography, things like that, they wear you down to a point where you can't resist anymore. But the promise of God is that if we confess our sins, if we bring it into the light, over time God purges us. He begins to change us from the inside. So this is where developing a habit of confession comes in. Whether your problem's food or pornography or something else, as you continually bring it into the light, no matter what, no matter how many times it happens, God continually, the blessing is He continually, continually works on that area of your life, purging you until that sin no longer has a hold on you. That is His promise. David spoke of this surgery when he confessed his sin to, with Bathsheba in Psalm 51.10. He said, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. God does that when we confess our sin. If you keep coming into the light, you will change, I promise you. God promises to cleanse us from all of it. So don't stay away. Keep on confessing your sins. Keep on coming into his perfect purging light. Well, the third church-going type of person John expects to bump into is verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say we have not sinned means, I have not in any way engaged in a specific act of wrongdoing. This isn't about my sin nature like verse 8. This is about a specific behavior that's in my life that I say there's nothing wrong with that when God says it's sin. 
It's in the perfect tense too, which means it's not just a denial of a past sin, but it's that I've planted my life in this sin without any plan of changing it in the future. So the third person John expects to run into in a church environment is the person who refuses to admit that the way they're living is wrong. And I will say this is probably the most common challenge I run into as a pastor. Someone will come to seek my advice about the challenges they're having in their relationship with the Lord. I'll ask them some questions about their relationship with the Lord, and then I'll share some things from the Bible about areas that they need to change in order to go deeper with the Lord. And they will, it's a common occurrence is that that person will then explain why what they're doing isn't wrong, why it's okay, and then their frustration toward me about why I'm telling them they can't go deeper with the Lord if that's going to be their mindset. That's probably my biggest challenge. Because you care about the person who's sitting across from you, you love them, you want them to do well, you want them to go deeper with the Lord, and now I'm an obstacle from them to continue doing what they're doing and thinking they're okay with God. I don't want to be an obstacle to anybody, but the truth is I'm not the obstacle. The obstacle is their sin, and I'm trying to point that out, and they don't want to receive it. This persistent justification or excusing of sin is just a nicely dressed up way of walking in darkness. Warren Wearsby said, if a believer decides to live an independent life, how can he possibly walk in fellowship with God? If the Lord says, I'm going this way, and a person says, well, that's fine, God, we have a great relationship, but I'm going this way, you're going to go apart. You're not going to get closer because you're not going the same direction. Harry Ironside said, if I am to ever have fellowship with God, I must recognize that our fellowship must be in the light. Guys, God has set the terms for my relationship with Him. I do not get a say in that. I don't get to alter that. I don't get to come to the Lord and go, well, my relationship with you works like this. I can't do that. Because God will not be satisfied with just coexistence with us. He will not be satisfied with a surface-level relationship with us. He went to the cross to bring us close. So the knee must be bent. My will must comply with His for the relationship to be meaningful. And God's will is that I own up to my sin. And I don't think it's a complicated ask. I don't think it's something that God is asking us something that's unbearable. He is asking that I own up to my sin. He commands us to be perfect. Jesus said, be perfect, therefore as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, never move the standard. But He knows our frame that we're simply dust. Frequently we see in the Scriptures about how He's compassionate towards us. His heart is towards us, even in our sin, even when we fail. But He has a term, an important term for the relationship, which is you need to own up to it. You need to own up to it. Both as a principle, the fact that you are a sinner, and in your individual actions that are wrong. Now, when I don't own up to my individual actions that are wrong, it creates two serious problems. John says, if we do that, we say we have not sinned, what I'm doing isn't wrong, we make him a liar, number one, and number two, his word is not in us. So what's this first problem? We make him a liar. Well, that's the word that Jesus used to describe Satan in John 8, 44. In other words, we mess with God's character when we live that way. When I choose to justify or excuse or think God will ignore what I am doing, I mess with His character. I'm declaring that He is not who He says He is. He's not really that. 
And that is the, my biggest problem with the billboard on I-4 that says God is not angry. In Psalm 711, the psalmist says, God is angry with the wicked every day. And what that billboard could be just as easily saying is, nah, brah. God is just kidding. He isn't who he says he is. You could easily reword it, and that's what it's saying. And that's what the Gnostics did. When I justify or excuse or think God will ignore my sin, what I'm doing, I I don't just interfere in my own relationship with the Lord. I begin leading others away from Him too. I'm sure that there were some folks who were attracted to the Gnostic idea where you could join a religion, where you could do whatever you wanted to, and God was okay with it. But all human beings have a conscience inside of them, and they know when they see something wrong, even if they're suppressing certain other wrongs in their own life, and they call it out. That's wrong. I mean, every time a pastor or, you know, or some type of a Christian figure does something wrong, they, they call it out, and they should. When someone claims to love Jesus or speak the truth about God, but their actions go against what every person's conscience knows is right, it makes people think poorly of the Lord. It makes God out to be different than our conscience testifies. It makes him out to be a liar. I don't want to tarnish my witness like that. When I say there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing, when God says it is, people's conscience knows it. And you ruin your testimony, you tarnish it. Now, as an aside, I do think that this is a reason why you and I as Christians, if you're a believer, you must be oh so careful who you publicly support as a Christian. When Ye, the guy formerly known as Kanye, got saved, I'm not saying he's not, I'm not saying he is, when he got saved, you know, a couple years ago, everybody was like, yeah, look at this, what, look at what he's saying, look at what he's doing, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I kept being like, can we just let this guy grow a little bit? You know, I mean, I don't know where he's at. You don't know him. I don't know him. Jumping on a bandwagon of a public figure can be very dangerous the moment they start living like verse 10. And the problem is, recently, he's been living like verse 10. And now everyone that was publicly supportive of him has tarnished their testimony because they think you're like that. Whether it's a politician or a celebrity or a church leader, if you are vocally supporting someone who does wicked things, you're tarnishing your testimony. When you say, well, you know, how can I vote for anybody? Then everybody's a sinner. I didn't tell you who you could vote for. I said publicly support. That's different than voting. If we are publicly supporting people who do even just a few wicked things or even one wicked thing that's obvious for people, you are tarnishing your testimony. And if we learn anything from Moses, God takes misrepresenting him seriously. So when I say my sin isn't really sin or that person's sin isn't really sinful, they're actually really good and you should support them, it really hurts our witness. We make God a liar. And when I make God a liar, it makes it difficult or makes it impossible to go deeper with him. But that's not the only problem I create. It says we also... His word is not in us. We read in Psalm 119, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Having God's word in my heart is what keeps me on the right path. So if his word is not in me, how am I gonna stay on the right path? 
Warren Wiersbe said this, one of the first symptoms of walking in darkness is a loss of blessing from the Bible. You cannot read the word profitably while you are walking in darkness. That's a great truth. And I can say I've lived that way. This book, when I'm in sin, like if I've gotten into an argument with Bev on the way to work and I'm driving in and Jesus is like, can we talk about this? I'm like, no. This book, I don't want anything to do with it. It's not like I could just open up, you know, my, my, my Bible study program and sit there and start reading the Word and study and like, wow, Jesus is awesome. No, the Lord's like, good luck. Because we're, before we're going to start talking about this, I'm going to start, you know, speaking to your heart. You need to respond to the way I've already been speaking to your heart. I can't say I'm fine or you're wrong when you confront me about my sin. I can say it, but I'm deceiving myself into thinking there's nothing wrong between me and God. I can still read my Bible. I can even go to church and serve the Lord, but all that time, His Word won't be penetrating my heart because if it was, I would sense conviction and hear God pleading with me to confess and repent, to come into the light so He can deal with my sin. And so what happens is, is when I persist in my justification or excusing or ignoring of my sin over time, my understanding of God's Word begins to become warped because I'm only reading it or studying it or even preaching it with human understanding. It's not getting past my head and into my heart. And when I fill myself with my own ideas instead of God's truth, I start drifting away from the Lord instead of going deeper with Him. So John is saying, I want you to go deeper with the Lord. So don't Don't do verse 10. If you've been doing verse 10, you need to come into verse 9. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that it's the Word of God that equips us to be a thoroughly mature man or woman of God. I will remain immature and ill-equipped to be a man or woman of God if I'm not walking in the light, not confessing my sin. And so, as the worship team comes up this morning to close us out, The big question is, if John were to visit our church and bump into you, which one of these three descriptions would you be? If you say, well, I'm kind of like a verse 8 person. I've never acknowledged my need for a Savior. Well, then you need to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. God loves you. He died for you. And He wants a relationship with you, but those are His terms. You need to bend the knee to His terms. And he promises he'll receive you if you do. Now, if you'd say, well, I'm more like a verse 10 person, Pastor Will. Well, then you need to confess or repent of the sin or the sins that you've been justifying or excusing or ignoring. Because continuing down the road you're on will eventually take you very far from the Lord, even if the distance seems small or unnoticeable right now. Don't harden your heart to what the Spirit of God has been convicting you about this morning. If, like, I start talking, the Lord's like this. Don't harden your heart to that. Don't harden your heart. Confess it. Bring it into the light. Stop arguing with the Lord and come into His light. And if you say, well, I am like a verse 9 person, Pastor Will. Well, then know this, that God is forgiving you and you confess. Know that God is purging you of that sin, even if it seems like you're not changing much right now. Stay in the light. Keep short books with God. Don't listen to the condemning lies of the enemy, but trust that the Lord always reacts towards you in a faithful and righteous way when you confess your sin. Amen?
Let's all stand. Lord, what a beautiful promise that you've given to us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just. So Lord, we want to do that this morning. Lord, if there's any sin we've been hiding or excusing or justifying or ignoring, we bring it into the light right now and say, Lord, you, if I put this off or I haven't been dealing with this or I've been making excuses or blaming others or blaming you, Lord, I just own it right now. This is all me. It's all on me. And I ask that you forgive me. Lord, for every person who's, that's kind of the prayer of their heart right now, I pray that you would wash them, Lord, forgive them, draw them close, and begin that work of purging that area of their life. Help them, remind them to stay in the light, to keep coming to you when they blow it, knowing that you'll receive them and continue that work of purging and making them more like you. And there were every eye closed, every head bowed. If you're here this morning and you say, well, I, I need to make that step to confess my sins and, and, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's a decision you want to make this morning, just lift your hand high because I'd like to pray with you as you make that choice to repent of your sins and trust Christ as your Savior. If you're receiving Christ this morning, just lift your hand up. Anybody this morning? Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Anybody else this morning? Lord, you see every hand that's raised this morning, you know every story behind those hands. So Lord, we thank you for those individuals. Lord, as they are saying, Lord, I repent. I repent of my sin. I, I come to you. I trust you as my Savior. You're the only salvation for my sins, and I run to you. Lord, will you wash them clean? Will you fill them with your spirit and change their life forever? We all pray in Jesus' name. Amen.